All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness in our life. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the ministry of uh, the Spirit. Thank you for leading us, teaching us in our study of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for, God, those who have come out tonight to sit under your word, to be a part of this study. And I pray, God, your blessing would be upon them. Lord, we pray for uh, Bill Anderson, who is in the hospital. And we pray, God, for your continued uh, uh, progressive healing, God, you're doing in his life. Thank you that Gary Hughes is here tonight. Pray that you would continue to touch his body. We pray also for Dave Goosen and uh, Lord, his health needs. Gwen Malden, God, and uh, Lord, others, Father, that Lord, that uh, whether we know them as part of this church or maybe even here tonight or some friend, family, Lord, we recognize that, God, you, uh, you can do all things, and we do pray for those that, uh, Lord, that need your touch physically tonight. Lord, we, uh, again, submit ourselves to your, you're the teacher tonight, so we pray that your Holy Spirit will lead us into not just some truth, but all truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're going to look at the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. And, uh, you know, I remember first time uh, hearing somebody teach on this, um, you know, your initial thought was like, I mean, Jesus, why would he need the Holy Spirit? Uh, you know, um, and you're like, well, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem, uh, how does that work? And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight and see the importance and uh, role that the Holy Spirit had in Jesus's uh, ministry, earthly ministry, uh, as Jesus was at the incarnation, becoming a man. Now, the Bible says in Acts ten, thirty-seven and thirty-eight, says the word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached, John the Baptist. And verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so tonight as we kind of, uh, again, survey, this is not going to be exhaustive we want to hit uh, some key some key points here as we talk about the Holy Spirit in Jesus's ministry and so your outline that you've provided I'll follow that uh, uh, fairly closely and uh, so number one uh, we see that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit provides Jesus's primary identity Jesus we know the Son of God but his primary identity and it really is at the very beginning in Luke 1.35. Remember the angel Gabriel, the announcement of the angel Gabriel uh, to Mary, explaining how she, a virgin, uh, was going to give birth, uh, be the mother of the Messiah. In Luke 1.35, it says, And the angel answered and said to her, when she said, How, how are these things possible? How, how can this be? And the angel announced to her, answered, and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And so, notice the language there. We've talked last week about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And you remember in Genesis 1-1 where it says, Then the Spirit of God hovered uh, over the face of the deep or over the waters. Uh, paraphrasing that there. But uh, it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That idea of the Holy Spirit will cover you, will immerse you, will overshadow you. Um, picture a metaphor uh, like we would say baptism. Baptism means immerse. The Holy Spirit is going to immerse you, that the Holy Spirit is going to make this possible. And notice also in this verse, and we'll see this time and time again, and one of the reasons why we're kind of taking uh, a little bit of time to kind of systematically walk through an understanding of the Holy Spirit as I said, a lot of times we immediately run and jump into talking about the Holy Spirit in relationship to spiritual gifts and the, the role of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever terms we want to use. But I'm hoping that as we begin to see the role of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible, so when we come to those areas, we will certainly see that what the Holy Spirit is doing in the New Testament, uh, life of the New Testament, life of the believer is consistent with everywhere else we've looked at what the Holy Spirit does, okay? So it's not going to be just be some isolated events, but we're going to see how the Holy Spirit is consistent in the role uh, uh, and where we see Him pictured. And so here we see the Holy Spirit uh, identified with power. Well, I think again that the role of the Holy Spirit being poured out in did not happen until Acts 2. And Mary was in the upper room. Mary got filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary spoke in tongues. Okay? So this is consistent with the nature of how the Holy Spirit worked prior to Pentecost where it was selective and it was, um, again, like Jesus said, it's to your memory, he told his disciples, it's to your advantage. Because in essence, the whole, he, it's like, I've been with you, but when I ascend, the Holy Spirit, my Spirit, will be in you. So I think you're right. I think this is kind of that limited, uh, we tend to not think of Mary, John the Baptist, and these events kind of under that Old Testament economy, because it's in the New. It can't be in the Old Testament, but they're functioning pre-Pentecost, if you will. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So, notice that it says, and notice the connection here, that, uh, let me see if I can do this. Notice that it, that it is associated with power. And that idea of the spirit and empowerment is a consistent picture and theme throughout the scriptures there. Um, remember in Acts chapter 1, Verse 7 and 8, it says, And he, Jesus, said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Uh, but what does he say? He says, But you shall receive what? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. So again, I just want you to see as we've kind of 
were in the Old Testament with the Holy Spirit. Now, these are the words, of course, earlier with the words of, of Mary or Gabriel to Mary, that idea of power that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, going back to the beginning there of Mary, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power uh, of the highest. All right? And though, so this, thing, this idea of empowerment, that's consistent with the uh, dream that Joseph had in Matthew 120. Remember Joseph? He had his own encounter uh, and confirmation uh, of what was going to take place as the step father. He was not a biological father. But the Bible says in Matthew 120, notice the language here, of the role of the Holy Spirit. And while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So right at the get-go of Jesus, we're talking about the incarnation, the uh, Jesus, Son of God, eternal Word of God, Word, uh, eternal God, taking on human flesh, incarnation, that's what we mean by the incarnation, that the uh, very beginning, the announcement of His birth of the Holy Spirit. And so as we move to Luke 3, we see that now when Jesus, is, Jesus begins his public uh, ministry, if you will, which began at the baptism, which John the Baptist, his cousin, that began a public ministry that would last three and a half years. We see that in Luke chapter 3 that says that when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Now remember, a lot of times people can get this all uh, com, com, uh, confused talking about baptism. Jesus wasn't being baptized. This was a different baptism than we have a baptism of the believer, the new covenant. Jesus was not being baptized because he was repenting of sin. That wasn't what John the Baptist baptism was about. It was a public declaration of repentance, national repentance. So that's why, again, John the Baptist was leading this baptism that people were coming to and announcing uh, and preaching righteousness. And so the baptism was a public act of, of their uh, repentance. And so Jesus, being identified with sinful humanity, even though he was without sin, he identified with us, right? And so he's identifying, ultimately identifying by taking on our sin, that it was, it was that in that uh, spirit that he allowed himself to be baptized. Because you remember John, John recognized his sinless, sinlessness. Remember when he said, whoa, you, you should be baptizing me, not me, you. But it wasn't because Jesus needed baptism because of repentance of his sin. He was doing it as an identifying, identifying with the sinfulness that he would be taking on uh, of humanity. So it says, verse 21, And when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit's not a bird. It, just, it was speaking of the gracefulness that they're describing what is taking place. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. 
just kind of in passing, do you see the Trinity uh, in the, those two verses here? It's certainly the Bible doesn't even use the word Trinity, doesn't use the word rapture, but it's implied, and we see the identification here. We certainly see Jesus there, right? And then we see the Holy Spirit, and we see the voice of the Father when he says, you are my beloved Son. So we see uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, roll in those two verses. And so here's just a quick application so we can move on to the second. We see the very beginning, Jesus is identified. His identity is wrapped around uh, the Holy Spirit. And so the application that I have in your outline is that the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus is the basis of Jesus' core identity while upon the earth. And we're going to kind of talk about how that, how that works as Jesus being God, his deity, but yet Jesus also was fully human. He wasn't half God, half human, but there was this duality in Jesus' life as he became flesh, took up on human flesh, but because of we know his father was not Joseph, he did not take on the sinful identity of the father. He was sinless, the Bible teaches. And so how do we balance and understand that Jesus' earthly ministry, that while he was God, a very God, Jesus being the God-man, as we'll see in a little bit and maybe unpack it, is Jesus lived as a man that was fully submitted and walked in the power and in the Holy Spirit, uh, even though he was God, but what Jesus did primarily he was doing as one that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So right at his birth, right at the very beginning, the Holy Spirit is an intrinsic part of the identity and life of Jesus. All right, let's keep going. Number two. The Spirit is the source of Jesus' power. The Holy Spirit is the source of Jesus' power, okay? Um, look at uh, the Scripture in John 5, 19. Now remember, Jesus, God of very God. But the Bible says in verse 19 of John 5, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, that the Son of God can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do. For whatever the Father does, the Son us also does in like manner. Now that should be a little, on the surface, a little troubling, because you're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? There's something that the Son cannot do. I mean, that doesn't seem to, like, what are you talking about? You mean there's something the Son cannot do? But Jesus... And we'll talk about this. Jesus is saying, again, earthly ministry, incarnation Jesus. He's saying that I have, and, and well, I'm gonna, I don't want to jump ahead here. But Jesus is saying there is a limitation that has been self-imposed that I am submitting my direction that I can only do what I see the Father doing. I'm taking my direction, not... Jesus' earthly advantage as God, but Jesus in this earthly incarnation, flesh, however terminology you want to use it, he's saying that I, in this role, I can only do that which I have submitted myself to the direction of my Heavenly Father. 
Here's a scripture that you've probably seen, we're familiar with. And this is Philippians 2, 5 through 7. And this gives us a little understanding of what Paul gives us a little behind the scenes, if you will, behind the curtain of what happened in the incarnation, in, the, in a theological sense. Paul, remember Paul is talking about being a servant. He's, giving the, he's wanting the church at Philippi to excel in being a servant. And he says, is there any higher example of one who is a servant than Jesus? That's the context of Philippians 2 when he said, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. Again, he's talking about being a servant who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now something I don't have in your notes and I don't want to spend too much time on it but it is pertinent to at least introduce the term to you and you can uh, look it up if, if you're so interested there. But that phrase in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 7, uh, the New American Standard, I think the New King James is what I had up there, in the New American Standard, it says verse 7, but emptied himself or made himself of no reputation. Uh, I think the uh, ESV uses empty himself too. It's a metaphor that Jesus, uh, in his incarnation, God of every God, becoming flesh, becoming human, it says, but emptied himself, and the Greek word there is kano, or kanao, uh, which is the word that is translated in English, emptied himself, took on form of no reputation, uh, various, that's, those are primarily the ways that it's interpreted. Now, just to give you a little uh, background understanding, the word kanao, or kano is the word that we uh, some have developed a theory called the kenosis theory from the word, the Greek word, kenoo, okay? Um, the kenosis theory holds that Christ gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth as a man. Thus, the word kenoo means to empty or is translated emptied himself. Here's, here's the issue here. The emphasis is not that Jesus gave up anything, but that Jesus took on something. So where this theory began to get traction was uh, somewhere in the 19th century, late 1800s, uh, in, uh, primarily in different liberal views of theology. And uh, remember what was really dominating and causing a lot of friction uh, in, in, uh, to believers was this uh, non-supernatural emphasis of the Bible. Remember that there were those who took a much more uh, rationalistic approach to Scripture and said, well, we know the Bible is not divinely ordained or divinely written. We know that um, you know, the miracles and things that Jesus did, he did more as an exalted human being. So here they said, well, here's a Scripture that gives us a little legs to this idea that Jesus divested himself of deity and became, they wouldn't use the word just a man, but that's kind of the implication. And that's a false understanding of what Paul is saying in Philippians 2. 
He's in no way suggesting or teaching, and we don't believe, that Jesus became less God, less deity, limited himself in the sense of who he was, meaning, well, could he have sinned? Well, if he was human, I guess he could. No, 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 no. It wasn't that Jesus gave up anything. It's just that Jesus took on something. It wasn't Jesus' identity by subtraction. It was Jesus' identity in relation to addition. Jesus took on the form of a servant. He took on the form of humanity. And that's really a proper way to understand Philippians chapter 2. Here's another, and again, this is not in your notes. I kind of threw it in at the last. So the best way, Philippians 2, to understand that passage is that it talks about Jesus giving up the status and privilege that was his in heaven, okay? It wasn't that he became less God, but he gave up voluntarily his identity, or not identity, that's not the right word I want to use, but his status and privilege that was his in heaven. The fact that Jesus depended on the power of the Spirit, remember, he's taking the form of a man, you know, we say, be like Jesus. You're like, well, uh, yeah, but Jesus is God. How? We can't do that. We can't walk like Jesus. We say, well, maybe I can be like Paul. Maybe, you know, because we know those were humans and they had flaws. Well, Jesus didn't have any flaws. But when we say, walk like Jesus, be walking in the Spirit like Jesus, when Jesus said, greater works you shall do, you're like, well, yeah, right, but you're God. We can never do that. Well, as a man walking in the voluntary submission of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus condescended in coming and becoming a man, that Jesus teaches us and shows us, and we're going to see this in a little bit, that he was dependent and functioned as a man full and empowered by the Holy Spirit and many of the miracles and the things that Jesus did, not all, but many of those that he did, he did as a man demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Not all, not all but we'll look at it. So the emphasis is not giving up as much as taking on. So the, just to kind of round this out, the God-man, Jesus... Uh, voluntarily made himself dependent. Remember John 5, 19? I can only do that which I see the Father doing. But if Jesus is equal in God of every God, then he's equal. I mean, then he's God. He doesn't have to, he's not. But on earth, he has voluntarily subordinated himself. And I know this is, but I'm, I'm stretching your little brains a little bit to give you an understanding. And, and if you understand it, and you're saying, oh, I understand that, then, no, you're not being truthful, because it's a mystery. When I say a mystery, it's kind of like, how do you explain three and one, the Trinity? How do you explain that? How do you explain the incarnation, God uh, in Christ, but Jesus was also a man? How do you adequately explain that, that rationally satisfies us? You can't. But this is, the, this is, the, this is kind of the, uh, the mystery, if you will, of what Scripture teaches about Jesus' true identity. And in church history, they've always faulted on one or the other. Either we're going to make Jesus so godlike that his manhood, if you will, was more of, well, he wasn't really 
fully man because the emphasis over here is on his deity. And the other extreme was making Jesus so much a man that it lessened, he was less of God. He was lesser than God of very God. And the Bible doesn't, the Bible holds both of those things in balance and intention. Doesn't mean we, we understand it like any more than we understand how Father, Son, Holy Spirit is one. We don't understand. It's just the Bible just presents this is what it is. Okay? So Jesus voluntarily, and that's Paul's point of being a servant, if Jesus, God of very God, with all the glories and privileges of heaven as God, voluntarily became a man as a servant, this is Paul's point in Philippians 2, how much more should you serve one another? I mean, if God of very God in Jesus became a man to, Jesus said, remember, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to what? That's the point of Philippians 2. And Paul's trying to introduce us or this idea that Jesus voluntarily made himself dependent while on earth to the Father. And again, it's hard for us to split these identities. I get it. But in our context of what we're talking about, he relied upon the empowerment of the Spirit rather than his deity. That's the only way I can explain it there, okay? All right, let's, let me just go on and finish this out. Christ did not always have to perform miracles in the power of the Spirit, but he did so on certain occasions, although in some instances he clearly used his own uh, divine power. So I just want you to, in case you're asked at this at the DMV or something, you'll know what the kenosis theory is, and you'll be able to get your driver's license and that kind of thing. But, but it is important because misunderstanding, if I could go back to misunderstanding of Philippians 2.7, you see, Jehovah's Witnesses have a false view of Jesus because they de-emphasize him, his deity, as just an exalted man who became the Son of God. Now, the Bible teaches in John 1, 1, John 1 you know, the Word was with God, the Word was, was God, the Word always was eternal, speaking of Jesus here. So all Paul is getting at there is that Jesus, in condescending, coming to, and becoming a man, think about the limitations. I mean, Jesus had to have diapers. You think he had divine bowels? I mean, you know, no. He, he became a man. And even though the Bible says that as our great, great high priest can sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, the Bible says that in every point was tempted but yet was without sin. And we say, well, yeah, but, you know, he was God, so it wasn't real temptation. Well, that'll just have to be something we ask when we get to heaven. But the Bible presents it as real temptation, but yet we also know, as soon as we say that, being God a very God, and he's immutable, that's just a fancy word to mean that as God he cannot change, right? But yet as a man... He experienced all the... For example, Matthew 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness. Was Jesus really hungry? Yeah. When, when Satan said, 
turn these stones into those uh, nice Ryan East Rolls. I don't know if they remember Ryan. Uh, I don't know what he did. But I think it was a real temptation. What did Jesus depend upon? He depended on the Word. He depended upon the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. So Jesus faced real temptation when Jesus prayed to the Father. And again, I get it. It's, it is a mystery. How do we split this, you know, one God, but yet we have the Son, the Father, the I mean... When he said, Father, may this cup pass from me. Was that a real, was that real agony? When it said that the sweat was of like drops, was that real or was that just, ah, you just make believe? Well, it was, there was, he was really human. He was really, I mean, and again, that was a big issue in the early church. Remember the Bible, I think it's First John talks about if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, because there were those that, again, wanted to go to the other extreme to try to put these things together and say, well, Jesus wasn't really in the flesh. He only appeared to be in the flesh. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. When they drove those nails into his hands and feet, real blood spilled. Real pain endured. All right? All right. Glad you got that figured out. All right, let's keep going here. Um... All right, number three. So this is a good segue of how do we explain Jesus' miracles, okay, to Jesus. And there's two ways that normally these have been approached, and I've kind of alluded to them, is, well, he did miracles by virtue of his divine being. Of course he could do miracles. He's God. And that's true. But I believe that what we see, not in every situation, but in many situations, in many cases, we see that the miracles that Jesus does was in the dependency of the Holy Spirit, of a man dependent of the Holy Spirit. Again, if he could only do miracles that were exclusively limited to his deity, then Jesus couldn't say to his disciples, go and do likewise. The best he could say, just, you know, do, do, do as I say, not as I do. But Jesus was demonstrating what it looked like for a man, person, to walk in absolute dependency, subordinated to his Father, absolute dependency in the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, WWJD. How many of you know what that is? And that's not an FM radio station in Fort Lauderdale. WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, of course, he's God. We can't be like him. That's why I said earlier, give me Paul, I can relate to him. He's a hothead, he loses his temper. He's, you know, give me Peter, he's impulsive and, you know, you know, he's kind of all over the map. I can relate to those guys. The Bible says that never, those are not our examples, it's Jesus. So how, how does Jesus in his incarnation demonstrate that we can walk as he walked before God unless he is somebody who's demonstrating what a life is to be walking in submission and dependency of the power of the Spirit. So many of the miracles that Jesus did, and we'll look at some, some of those maybe in a minute. Uh, so the application in your, your outline, if we accept that Jesus' miracles resulted, at least in part from him being a human being who is full of faith and in tune with his Father's will and timing, 
then Jesus becomes our supreme example as a Spirit-filled man from whom we can learn how to operate in the Spirit. I'm glad Paul teaches on the Spirit. I'm glad Peter teaches on the Holy Spirit. But they are not my supreme examples of how to live and walk in the Spirit. Jesus is. Otherwise, God's just kind of pulling our leg and saying, giving us an example of somebody who's dependent on the Father, walks in the power of the Holy Spirit, like, well, we all know you can never be like Him, so don't set your sights so high. To be like Jesus. Okay? Number four. Actually, let's look at some scripture. Yeah, number four. The Bible, again, this is just a survey. The Spirit comes on Jesus without limit. Number four. Okay, look at some of Look at uh, uh, John 3.34 in the NIV. For the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. So Jesus operates earthly ministry, incarnation, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. Again, when the Holy Spirit came upon him in that baptismal event, again, talking about the man Jesus, the Bible says that God is the one who's anointed his words, and those words are um, uh, spirit-led or derived from the Spirit, and it's without limit. Look at the uh, same verse in the Amplified. You know, the Amplified is, tries to bring out the Greek and Hebrew a little bit. Uh, same verse, but tries to expand on some of the uh, nuances of the Greek. For since he who... Same verse. For since he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, bracket, proclaims God's own message, God does not give him the Spirit sparingly or by measure... But boundless is the gift God makes of His Spirit. Again, that Jesus doesn't have just a little portion of the Holy Spirit, but God has given him an abundance of the Holy Spirit. The message paraphrase, not a translation, which is very loose, says it this way, and I like it the best. The one that God sent, same verse, speaks God's words, and don't think He rations out the Spirit in bits and pieces. He didn't ration out the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life in just little bits and pieces, but he gave it in fullness and abundance, and Jesus operated and functioned in the fullness of the Spirit. So the application there on your outline is Jesus not only operates by the Holy Spirit, but he baptizes or immerses his followers in the limitless access to the Spirit of God. What has Jesus come to bring us, to make it available to us, is the same abundance and outpouring of the Holy Spirit that He has walked in, that He has demonstrated. He's saying, in essence, by His life and ministry, I'm showing you what it looks like for you to have the fullness and abundance, not just in little drips and drabs, but to be totally walking and living as a Spirit-filled man or woman. Number five, Jesus's, Jesus ministers in the power of the Spirit. You know, it's interesting. Uh, well, let me look at some of these and I'll come back and comment on that. Luke 3, 2. Luke. 
While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. I don't know why. I don't think that's the right verse. 22. Uh, probably, and I've just put a 2 there. Uh, read 22. What does it say? Okay, so it's referencing back to the baptism. All right, thank you. All right, 4-1 I think is right. Then G, I just want you to see how Luke intentionally uses and why and how the Holy Spirit, the, and I would say the theology of the Holy Spirit, why that's so important to Luke. Remember Luke, what other book did Luke write besides the one that's got his name on it? The book of Acts. Maybe Hebrews, some people think Hebrews, but the book of Acts, we know. What is the book of Acts all about? I shouldn't say all about. It's all about Jesus. But it's all about Jesus and the what? The empowerment and demonstration of the spirit of Jesus now on the followers, on the church, on the expansion of this gospel, the work, the acts of the Holy Spirit. Some of your old Bibles you know, give these titles, the acts of the apostles. No, it's really the acts or the actions of, of the Spirit. You know, the, the apostles, they're minor players. The Holy Spirit, just like the Gospels. There's minor players, but Jesus is the starring role in the Gospels. And in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the starring role of the acts or the actions written by Luke. So here's where he, um, and I'll come back to that. Get ahead of myself. Okay, so see how Luke chapter 4 verse 1, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That was prior, Luke 4 on, remember when Jesus went into the wilderness, Matthew 4, same, same event, Luke 4, Matthew 4. Jesus was tempted by Satan, hunger, power, identity. If you're really the Son of God, the implication is, just jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Everybody, you don't have to waste your time with those 12 yahoos. You don't have to go through all this. Just leap off the temple where everybody will see, because the Bible, you know, the devil knows. He doesn't know the Bible. He can quote the Bible. He doesn't understand it because the Holy Spirit is the only way you get understanding of the Bible. But he said, you know, the angels, the Bible says, the quoted scripture, the angels will not... Let your feet be bruised. They'll, they'll capture you as you descend. They'll protect you. And as the angels see the, you coming off the pinnacle of the temple, they'll all be amazed that this must be the Messiah, Jesus. This is a great shortcut. He said, do not tempt the Lord thy God. And then, of course, Satan made him an offer that Jesus could refuse. When, Jesus, when Satan said, well, just bow, and I'll give you, showed them all the kingdoms of the world. I don't know how that happened, but it must have been some LED screen up there, right? So all the, which is interesting, to that, that Jesus didn't contradict the fact that the Bible speaks of Satan as the god of this age, that Adam gave up his authority in the garden. So in one essence, Satan was telling the truth when he said, I have authority to give you this. Well, he didn't really, but he did. Because he had a temporary authority that he received when Adam relinquished his authority. Remember Adam? Remember that guy? Adam, by his disobedience, 
relinquished his authority up over, over the earth and gave it, if you say it that way, gave it to Satan. Now we know that Satan doesn't have ultimate authority. He's not in ultimate control. But that was the whole point of Jesus being victor and victorious and taking back the authority that was God-given at the cross. And so, in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, it says that, G, or 4-1, notice it wasn't the devil that pushed him into the wilderness. It was what? It was who? The Holy Spirit. And then at the end there, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit because Jesus was victorious in overcoming Satan in, those, in that wilderness temptation. Adam failed. Jesus faced Satan and was victorious. How, did he, how was he victorious? Well, Luke tells us at the beginning it was the Spirit that put him in the wilderness. And when he came out of that encounter with Satan, what? He came out in the power of the Holy Spirit. How did he do that? In the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, interesting that the reason I mention about Luke, just kind of a side, uh, let me look at a couple more here. Luke, I just, I'm, these are all from Luke, and I want to make a point about Luke in a minute. Remember Jesus in his hometown, quoting from Isaiah 61, when he got up and took the scroll, was in his hometown synagogue, and took the scroll and opened it to Isaiah, as the British would say. And Jesus read, and he didn't just read it, but he was reading it, attributing it to himself. Like, this is me, guys. This is me. You know how I know that? Because if you read the end of that, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. They knew exactly what he was doing. I say exactly, but they knew, they knew the implication. Jesus read. What, and no, don't just fly by this. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Yahweh is upon me. Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to the heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. How? How am I doing? The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, he says. It says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Look at Luke 10, 21. Last, one last one before I make a comment about Luke. Luke 10, 21. Again, Luke's full of the spirit upon Jesus he, he's got a he, he's making a point here it's not just accidental he, he's driving home a theology of the spirit in the gospel of Luke as he does in Acts Luke 10 21 at that time Jesus look at this this is the NIV full of joy how through the Holy Spirit it says I praise you father here's, here's what I want to mention about Luke kind of start at the back door and make a point, is oftentimes those who would, we would identify when it comes to the uh, spiritual gifts for today, okay? Gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Are those available today? Or are those 
that when the apostles died, there was no need for them because now we have the Bible. Well, they would argue and make this point oftentimes in traditional evangelical theology is that we should not, and again, this is pure conjecture, doesn't, that we shouldn't develop our theology from the narrative portions of Scripture, but from the didactic. Didactic means teaching, i.e. Paul, Romans, Ephesians. That's where we should build our theology of the church, not, on, not in the narratives like the Gospel or Acts. Because if you develop it that way, you're like, well, yeah, but that was, that was then. But we need to develop our doctrine for today around the writings of the Apostle Paul. We need to, you know, by what Peter teaches and the, the letters, the teaching portions. Are any of you heard, familiar with you? Okay. But the problem is, that seems to go against that all Scripture is inspired by God. And that would suggest that Luke, talking about Luke here, doesn't have a theological bias that when he writes, he's not intentionally wanting you to understand something by virtue of the Holy Spirit about the life and ministry of Jesus. Again, all through Luke, uh, often, sometimes people call him the uh, theologian of the Spirit because Luke is just so saturated with an emphasis upon the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. And then when he transitioned and, and writes volume 2 of the book of Acts, what do we have in the Acts? We've got all the work of the Spirit and the movement of the Spirit and taking this gospel of Christ throughout all the earth. So if you read somebody and they say, well, you can't, you can't build doctrine based upon those narrative experiential passages because we're not... We're not back there. We didn't, we didn't experience and live in that time that the doctrine was still in development. So when we get to the Apostle Paul where he's writing letters to the church, giving them instructions, that's where we should build our doctrine. That's where we should build our understanding about the Holy Spirit, etc., etc., etc. And I would say, wow, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if we ought to cut up our Bible that way. It's all instructive. Yeah, there's various dispensations and periods of time where certain things are emphasized. But to deny and to misread that Luke is saying, Jesus, he was showing you what life in the Spirit is all about. Don't miss it. Don't miss that. And, and that's as much uh, something we and Jesus wants us to experience today. That's why he did what he did. That's why he was living his life in submission of the Spirit and the Father. And so the whole Bible is instructive. Not just the portions that Paul would write, but there are those that would hold that. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the New Testament, you got almost uh, about 27% of the New Testament was written by Luke. John wrote 20 maybe almost 21%. Paul wrote 23, maybe almost 24%. Matthew is about 13.5%. So that means of the New Testament, 
of words, that's 37,932 words, are attributed to Luke alone. And if we hold to that view, it's saying, well, you can't really build doctrine upon 27, almost 28% of the words of Luke as though that doesn't count or that's irrelevant. Do you understand? You may not... That's the argument that those who would want to say that we can't build upon experience or we can't build upon the narrative history. We need to build and ground our doctrine upon exclusively the letters of the Apostle Paul. And I'm saying, why are we going to throw out 28%, 27% of the words of Scripture that Luke, I mean, Luke had an intent. Luke had a, a, an intent in why he's writing what he's writing. It wasn't just random, narrow words. He's driving home. Read Luke sometime and Mark every time he talks about the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit, and Jesus and the Spirit together. Mark all those. Go through it. Heavy. Yeah. Sure. Well, Andy Stanley says we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And I get it now that he's endorsed homosexual marriage. I guess I understand why he said that. Right? Um, so, now obviously we're not under the law. We're not trying to go back to the Levitical code. And even though we might want to stone our children, we don't do that, right? Obviously there's differences, but there is a continuity of God's revelation that's woven all through. And this is where when you understand the covenants, you see that, that wovenness all through Scripture. You see a progressive, you know, you see the beginnings and seeds of the Abrahamic covenant brought to its fruition in the new covenant under the blood of Christ. They're not separate as much as they are outgrowths all throughout the development of Scripture. So again... I want a whole Bible, right? Not little chops and, and scissors like the Jefferson Bible. You remember what the Jefferson Bible was? He was an admirer, Jeff, John, Thomas Jefferson was an admirer of the words of Jesus. So he took scissors and cut out only the words that Jesus said and cut out and, and pasted it in, in his own little journal and made his own little New Testament book of Jesus but he left out any of the miracles or anything supernatural. And you can buy it on Amazon. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And it's, you know, it's got his, uh, what he admired about Jesus as a teacher, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we tend to do that. And again, line up online, it, it doesn't mean we, you know, you've got to be a good steward of, biblical interpretation, all that. But I'm just making the point, Luke is a theologian of the Holy Spirit. And we can learn about the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus from Luke legitimately because Luke is a God-inspired, Spirit-driven author of Scripture in his own right. 
And don't let anybody say, well, we can't build up on that because those are narrative. We need to limit ourselves to the letters and the teachings aspects of Scripture. Well, I, I, I just disagree with that. And there are people, again, people I love, John MacArthur and others, that primarily hold that view, all right? All right, where are we at here? Let's hurry. Ed, you're messing around here. We need to hurry up. All right, number six. <laughs> The power of the Spirit to heal and deliver. All these kind of interplay with each other. Uh, Two verses that connect um, uh, Jesus. Again, we read Luke 4.14. Jesus returned back in the power of the Holy Spirit. uh, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth by the Holy Spirit. Luke 5.17. Notice how many of these are about Luke. Talking about the Spirit. Uh, It says, one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Samaria, Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now, it doesn't necessarily directly say the power of the Holy Spirit, but I think the implication we can draw from, for example, uh, in Luke 11:20, Jesus said, "But if I cast out demons," and he uses this phrase, which is interesting. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the demonstration of the presence of the kingdom is when the Son of Man casts out demons. What's he doing? He's reestablishing the authority of God upon the earth that the enemy has stolen, if you will, since the garden. When you see the Son of Man coming back to take back the authority of When you see the Son of Man kicking the bums out, the demons, all right, that's the message translation. He says, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. When you see the Son of Man casting demons out, demons do not have any right to the earth, to this planet, to this which God has given and God has created. Uh, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. When you see me casting out demons by the finger of God, I love that, just, just, you know, just finger, just go. You'll know that the kingdom, or I would say the presence and power of the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, when you see the Son of Man kicking demons out, you'll know a new sheriff is in town. Why? Because he's come to take that which was illegitimately taken and stolen. What is Jesus referred to as the second Adam? The first Adam failed. Jesus, identifying as the second Adam, succeeded in doing everything Adam failed to do. Now, this is the same, I'm going to read you Matthew's version, same exact parallel. Notice what, how Matthew writes, but if I cast out demons, Matthew doesn't say by the finger of God. Matthew says, what? By the Spirit of God. Okay? So I want you just to see the power of Christ and the Spirit as deliverer. Number seven. I think this is the last one. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his followers. That which he has walked in, it isn't like, well, sorry guys, 
This is just for me. No. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But John, this is John the Baptist speaking. Remember these words? But after me, John says, comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. Notice what John says. He will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Just like water is a metaphor of the Spirit, you often see fire as a metaphor of the Spirit. Here's Luke again. John answered them all. Same, same uh, parallel. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to immerse you in the Spirit. The whole, Jesus promises and Jesus came full of the Spirit and is going to immerse us or baptize us in the empowerment of the Spirit. Luke 24, 49. Here again, Luke, the theologian of the Holy Spirit, he said, Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. This is Jesus talking. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Remember, he's telling them to remain in the upper room. And of course, we know Acts 1 that uh, they were assembled, assembled together, but Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And Jesus said in verse 8, He tells those disciples again about that promise that you will receive power, wait, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, here again, comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, etc., etc. Let me just look at these last, this summary to kind of wrap it up on the summary. The Holy Spirit is great emphasis and responsible for Jesus' core identity as the unique Son of God, not only in His conception, but His anointing by the Spirit at baptism. Jesus was conceived, anointed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the source of Jesus' power. He says He can do nothing by Himself. Not speaking as God, but again, speaking in the, as an incarnated man, Son of God, Son of Man. He said, I can do nothing by Myself, but only what He sees the Father doing. How is He able to do that? He's able to do it because He was conceived and anointed and full of the Spirit. Thirdly, Jesus doesn't do doesn't always do miracles by virtue of being the Son of God, um, but by the Holy Spirit that is upon Him. Okay, so yeah, there are times, I mean, there are functions. Remember when Jesus, the Bible talks about, uh, not necessarily a miracle, but remember there'd be situations where Jesus, where it would say, Jesus perceiving in His heart what they were, what they were contemplating. I mean, there's many events. In fact, you remember the penultimate expression where the disciples got a little peek of the glory and deity of Jesus. Do you remember where that was in the Bible? Mount of Transfiguration. Remember he took Peter, James, and John and they, he exposed them for a moment of the glory that he set aside, not emptied, but set aside that Paul talks about in Philippians 2. They caught a little glimpse of that glory and it was so magnificent, Peter wanted to build a church up there. Remember? One for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And the Bible, if you read it, it says that while Peter was still talking, 
the voice from heaven said, this is my son. You pay attention to him. Moses and Elijah are just minor players. He's the one. That's what Hebrews 1, 1 says. In past, in various ways, God spoke through his prophets in various ways. But in these latter days, he has spoken to us in his son. Okay? And so, number four, in a number of instances, especially Luke's gospel. Read Luke. Mark, every time you see him emphasizing the Spirit, and you tell me he doesn't, he's not trying to drive home a point. Jesus ministers in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus has promised to baptize us. He said, it's better. Better that I go, because if I don't go, the Father won't release and send the Spirit. So here's the bottom line. If Jesus relied on the power of the Spirit, how much more must we rely on Him and listen to Him? If Jesus is our example, and Jesus voluntarily, He didn't take away, He added His humanity and allowed and became voluntarily dependent upon subordinating Himself to the Father and being um, directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, then when Jesus says... Greater work shall you do. Is he teasing us? Is he pulling our leg? Or is he actually saying, I'm show, I've showed you. Now I'm coming and I'm going to be in you. I'm going to give you the power to do what you can't do by yourself. That's why that empowerment of the Spirit is so critical to our Christian life. I'm going to enable you supernaturally to do what I did. Now, I don't know if some of us believe that. Because we're just content to have kind of life just the way it is. Instead of really believing and saying, wow, what would my life, my life look like if I truly, really believed and walked in a dependency of the Holy Spirit? What would that look like? What, how would that change? How would that affect my fears and phobias? How would that affect how I treat others if I'm really a person empowered and full of the Spirit? What are the implications? Oh, that's too much of a threat. I kind of like, kind of like the way I do things. That isn't what Jesus has come to give us and the potential for us to walk. Imagine a church, imagine believers that really believe that they could walk in the complete fullness of the Spirit and power of God. What would that look like? What would that look like in our churches? All right. Father, thank you for your word. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.